0: Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy.
1: Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we'll be picking up in point number one, point number one in our worksheet, uh, entitled Important Prophecy Terms. And these are the seven sets of terms that we'll be going through over the next several programs to help us set a foundation to give us a better understanding of some key terms that we're going to be hearing as we go through this overview of the 30 prophetic events that are yet future to us, uh, starting today and culminating with eternity at the end of Revelation chapter 22. So it's a lot of rich Bible knowledge that we're going to be going through, but knowledge is only good if you understand what you're reading in, in context. Uh, so that's why we're going through these seven sets of terms. And in point number one on our worksheet, and again your worksheet's available, as the announcer has told you, here at the web, at the um, radio station website, whcbradio.org, and I would suggest you get it so you can see um, follow along with us in all of these scriptures that we're going through. In fact, you can use it to make notes as well. So we are in the portion of number 1 under the son of god looking at the uh, the fleshly aspects of Jesus and we've been talking for some time now about how he came as was prophesied by god a man would come to the earth and that god said this is the one that you should listen to because if you don't listen to him and do what he says and this is not a tyrannical type Person that you must get on your knees and and um, swear fealty to in the sense of if I don't I'm going to be killed. Um, it is someone you want to get onto your knees because you voluntarily want to do it because you recognize this man as your Lord and Savior, and that indeed of course was the prophesied Jesus Christ, uh, the Messiah of Israel at that time, and we have been uh, looking at that and how he has come to the uh, come to the earth born of a uh, a virgin in an immaculate conception and uh, had been prophesied that he would come yet Israel even though they had the biblical writings prophesying exactly when he would come to the earth they still denied him so we have that particular aspect of why uh, we have the church age because uh, the, the realization is Uh, And we don't really spend a lot of time on it because it's not the facts that happened. But the realization is that the church exists only because Israel denied Jesus. Think about it. If they had accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah, he would have set up his millennial kingdom 2,000 years ago, and there would be no need for a church. So we, as it says in in Romans uh, 11, in fact, I think it's verse 11, a key purpose of the church is to make Israel jealous of what we have that they could have had and will have uh, at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back at his second coming and fulfills all of those wonderful uh, covenant promises to Israel. But in the meantime, we have the church, and praise God that we do, because that's allowed me and my family and uh, many people I know to uh, have the confident hope of eternal life um, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he had to come. He had to provide that perfect sacrifice. And in order to do that, he had to come as a man so that we could identify with him and identify a man going through all the temptations that Satan would throw out to us. They were thrown out to him in a very big way. If you think about the temptation in the wilderness right after he was baptized by John the Baptist. Those are things that we hope we would never have to endure in terms of temptations uh, from the evil one. But he did, and he, and he um, surpassed all expectations, if you will, in a sinless way. So he was a fleshly man, as we're reading here uh, in our current uh, portion of the study of, of, of number uh, point number one, that uh, in his fleshly state he was able to uh, stand up to all these temptations so he's the perfect example for us and we um, spent a little bit of time at the end of the last um, teaching portion of our last program in Genesis chapter 5 to make the point the distinctive difference between being in the likeness of God which is what Adam was when he was created and then we went to um Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, and showed that when Adam had his son Seth, Eve did, but Adam and Eve, that it was in the likeness of man now, because man is now in the fallen state because of Adam and Eve's transgression there in the garden with the eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we've gone from the likeness of God to the likeness of man, and we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that. Jesus came to this earth and took on the likeness of man, the likeness of fallen man. Even though he was a sinless person, he took on the likeness of man. And I wanted to uh, go to our next verse there in point number one under the Son of God, and that's in the book of Romans. The book of Romans back in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans And I want to go to chapter 8, Luke chapter 8. You can see that on the worksheet. Luke, or rather, uh, Romans chapter 8. And I want to go to verse 3. It says in Romans 8, 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So we have what we've been looking at here in Philippians chapter 2, and with the expanding on it in Genesis chapter 5 about the likeness of man. We see that term again here the likeness of sinful flesh, and therefore could be the perfect, it doesn't say it here, but we know understand it from the scriptures, to be the perfect offering for sin. It was a sinless creature, in this case a man, a sinless man like Adam, the fallen man, as the sacrifice for our sins. So a man had to die for the sins of man, and therefore this man in the likeness of man Um, or I should say this God in the likeness of man had to come to this earth, which he did, and he had to be sacrificed, which he was, for the forgiveness of our sins. So in doing that, sin was condemned. He, He overcame the power of Satan at that point by being resurrected. Remember, when Jesus was crucified and died, it was his death, the spilling of his blood and the subsequent death that forgave us of our sins. But if he had stayed in the grave, we would have had our sins forgiven, but we would not have the hope of eternal life because it was his resurrection from the dead that overcame death, that overcame the great power of Satan, which is death. He overcame that and therefore could promise us through a belief in him that we could have eternal life. And I think that's just an amazing understanding of the components of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. His death was for the forgiveness of sins because that was the required sacrifice that God had laid out in the garden when he killed that first animal for Adam and Eve, and that Abel copied because he saw what God had or He had heard. I wasn't born at that point, I would assume, but we don't know that. Abel was had copied that and Cain didn't. And and that's why Abel was counted as righteous and Cain wasn't. So we have that, that perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, but it's that glorious resurrection that gives us our hope, our confident expectation that a Christian has that we will one day arise from the dead or perhaps if we're alive at the time of the rapture, we will be translated in our living bodies Uh, to jesus and have our bodies transformed in the air to be with him forever so that that glorious hope is all part of that death burial, and resurrection and we see that that jesus had to bring that about so this son of god this son of man is the one who um, was promised and brought that about for us Uh, amen then i wanted to stay in the book of romans and make one more uh, point in romans To um, further uh, build on what we're trying to point out here about the flesh. And in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, we find in Romans 1 verse 3 concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I find it interesting as well. In verses three and four of Romans 1, you see the triune Godhead. You see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it talks about how this descendant of David, and that's interesting because Mary was a descendant of David, and Joseph was a descendant of David. Satan tried to cut that bloodline off, which goes through the male. if indeed this was all about the Son of Man, tried to blood, uh, cut that bloodline off, and indeed we find at the end of the Babylonian captivity, in five, um, just before the final destruction, I believe the destruction was 586 B.C., so this is probably around 590, 590-something B.C., before the final destruction is when the last true bloodline king um, was taken captive, and that's Jeconiah. And the Bible tells us in um, Chronicles that uh, Jeconiah was cut off. I take it back, not Chronicles, I believe it was Jeremiah, that Jeconiah was cut off and was counted as childless. So you could imagine Satan at that point in time thinking, Yippee! I have cut the bloodline off of Jesus. And why is it important that Satan wants to cut the bloodline off of Jesus? If he can keep Jesus from coming, Jesus is the one who's going to crush the head of Satan. Satan knows that. He just doesn't know any of the particulars. He doesn't know when this person's going to be born, uh, who he is necessarily. Uh, He'll know after the fact. Because remember, Satan's a created being. He doesn't have any uh, omniscient uh, all-knowing like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Satan is a created being like you and me. And therefore, he's constantly looking to stop this bloodline, to stop the birth of this man who's going to kill him. Obviously, he failed, but he thought he was successful here. Well, God had planned that in advance, and it turns out that while um, Joseph would have been in the bloodline of um Solomon. It turns out from David, the son of David. It turns out that Mary, if you'll follow in the book of Luke, you'll find that Mary is in the bloodline of Nathan, another son of David. So it's it's a true statement not having to do with the father, Joseph. It's a true statement having to do with the mother, that the mother is in the bloodline. And of course, the seed, if you will, is from the Holy Spirit. So it's an immaculate conception here but i think that's a very powerful point here that in the descendants of david which of course jesus had to be so satan thought he won but satan failed of course you, know, you think about the, the 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 birth of christ and then when he has him on the cross there's there's satan doing another dance i've beaten i've beaten this man who's going to kill me and what did jesus do He arose from the dead on the third day. Satan could not have known that, so it caught him totally by surprise. And that whole plan of Satan from Genesis chapter 3 when he was cursed all the way to the end of the Bible, it's interesting to follow that flow of Satan because you see what God does, Satan tries to counter all the way through the Bible because Satan's trying to make sure that he stays in power. And, of course, Satan stayed in power as the prince of the world when, when Adam and Eve fell. And he doesn't want to lose that position. We know he does, amen. But it's uh, interesting to see how he fights all through the Bible. He fights God. So we see here that um, in Romans chapter 1, a reiteration of the fact that this is a man born in the flesh but was declared the Son of God. And that's what we're going to want to explore as we go forward here, but I wanted you to see one more passage before we leave this fleshly aspect, and that's in the book of Matthew. So we're in Romans chapter 1, so we just back up here a few books, back um, back past uh, Acts and then the uh, Gospels and go to the first of the Gospels and go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, we want to go to verse 23. And I want to show you something here that just, you know, as you as you study the Bible, and you think how awesome it would be to be have been an apostle, to be able to walk with Jesus for you know a good half of his ministry. The first good part of his ministry, he was a an individual, if you will, an itinerant pastor. Going throughout the land, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and then he brings his apostles on. So they're they're with him during a good good half or more of his ministry. But to be one of these apostles and to be able to sit at his feet and to hear just the not only the teachings but just the idle conversation, what Jesus would have said, and to just be in awe of who this man is and to see what he did what he did at the time. But then we come, to Matthew, we come to Matthew chapter 8, and I want to just share this with you to, uh, to show you the, if you will, the frailty of man even in the presence of God. And we start in Matthew chapter 8 at verse 23. Matthew eight twenty three. When he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. They came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Verse 26, Jesus, he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Now look at verse 27. The men, who were the men? The apostles were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, I kind of sometimes just have a hard time getting my arms around that concept that these men have been traveling with him And he performs these miracles, and to understand that he is from God. He's the prophesied Messiah. They've agreed with that. Yet here he is rebuking the wind, and they want to know what kind of a man is this. So I guess one way to look at this thing is if you, uh, listener, struggle with your faith, know that the apostles struggled with their faith, even in the presence of God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. Because he has yet to announce, uh, chronologically going through Matthew, he he has yet to announce that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day. They don't have that comprehension yet. But uh, when they do, when they are told that, we are told in the scriptures, they even struggled with that concept how can this happen? How can this man be taken away from us? So the point is perseverance, perseverance in the faith here that even the apostles struggled as we see here in Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 8 verse 27 that even the apostles struggled with their faith with this man, this fleshly man who is God, but you you can very easily see him as a fleshly person and follow him that way, and of course that's incorrect. And the, the apostles ultimately find that out. Okay, we have um, finished that portion of going through this uh, term, the Son of God, talking about the fleshly portion. And in our next program, we're going to start to really delve into what I've been talking about from the beginning here, is what does it mean in the flow of Scripture when you see the term, the Son of God, Why is it important to understand the difference between that term, Son of God and Son of Man? And we'll do that in our next program. But now we want to turn again to a question that we have from Rich, and it has to do with the Holy Spirit and how he works in the tribulation. And his question was, if the restrainer of evil, the Holy Spirit, listed in 2 Thessalonians 2, is taken out of the way, before the tribulation begins, how can the tribulation saints of Revelation twenty be saved if there's no Holy Spirit? Well, there is a Holy Spirit, and it's clear. It's important that we understand how the Holy Spirit manifests Himself from Genesis to Revelation. It's different depending on the circumstances, depending on the time frame, I should say. And to be um, more correct, it, it's it's different depending on the dispensations. And, of course, there are the seven dispensations from Genesis to Revelation. And he works one way in the dispensation of the law. He works a different way in the dispensation of grace, which is the church. And then he's going to work another way during the tribulation. And what we were doing was trying to to show the various ways the triune Godhead works in interacting with humankind from Genesis to Revelation. And we were exploring the point about why doesn't God just come down here and do it all himself? Why the need for the Holy Spirit? Why the need for Jesus? And it has to do with sin. God cannot be, God the Father, cannot be in the presence of sin. So for my study of the Bible, I only see God the Father, the number one person in the triune Godhead, interacting directly with man Um in the beginning of Genesis and the end of of Revelation. And of course, at the beginning, the very beginning of Genesis, there's no sin. It's a perfect world. And at the end of Revelation, we have the new heavens and the new earth. And again, it's a perfect world. The way it was intended to be in the beginning of Genesis will be again at the end of Revelation as we go uh, into eternity after the millennial kingdom. And we were exploring the point at the beginning of Genesis. And if we could go back to Genesis chapter 2, and we saw where God in the triune Godhead capacity, which is called Elohim, God is called Elohim, which is plural for God, and we see all three components, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, interacting in the, in the creation of the earth and everything associated with creation, including man. But then we see God conclude the creation week in Genesis chapter 2, again referring to himself through the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Genesis, which is Moses, and he refers to himself as Elohim. Then he turns his attention, if you will, in chapter 2, verse 4, From the creation week, which is now complete, to dealing directly with mankind. And this whole point about redemption, the plan of redemption is established here. And God is showing himself in a little bit different light, if you will, because he goes from referring to himself as Elohim to verse 4, where he refers to himself as Lord God now. It was God in verse 3 and all during creation week, and now it's Lord God. And we want to look at this in a somewhat different way because we now not only have the aspect of Elohim, which is the the creator God aspect of God, but now we have the Lord aspect added, and that is Yehovah. And Yehovah is a kind of a conjunction of Adonai and, uh, uh, and um, Yahweh, the consonants and the, the syllables. We don't want to get into all that Uh, I talked about that in our last program, that it's basically talking now about the covenant aspect of God and the creator aspect of God. So this is, if you will, the Godhead. This is God the Father um, dealing directly with man, and that's the point I want to make here. It's God the Father dealing directly with man, and then we go over to chapter three and this is the fall this is the fall of adam and eve and god has told them to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and of course they've been tempted to do that by satan and then look in verse eight chapter three verse uh, eight and it says they adam and eve heard the sound of jehovah elohim walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Jehovah Elohim among the trees of the garden. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here because, there, I mean, this is just so, so rich with information. But I just want to make the point that Jehovah Elohim interacts with man. Now you, you're saying, wait a minute, this is sinful man now. Man has fallen. And you are correct in following through here. But what Jehovah Elohim is doing is establishing, one, the fact that sin has happened. He's declaring that sin has happened. Jehovah Elohim is now declaring to mankind that because of the sin that has befallen mankind, there are consequences to the sin that has befallen mankind. And that sin, that consequence for that sin is death. There's no longer eternal life. But the key thing I want to point out here is this same Jehovah Elohim who's pointed out the sin, declared the sin, declared the consequences. He is now bringing about the plan of redemption, the plan of redemption, because you see in verse seven, it says, Uh, The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So here is sinful man scrambling around trying to figure out how to address the sin that they have committed and the way they addressed it is to do something themselves. Now drop down to verse 21. It says in Genesis 3:21, the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So to kind of summarize this, Genesis 3, 7 is man coming up with his own way to interact with God, to address God, to appease God. For lack of a better term, Genesis 3, 7 is religion. It's religion. It's a man-made thing. But Genesis 321 is God, Jehovah Elohim, providing the redemptive plan. And basically what he did is he took an innocent animal and killed it and provided the skins. And we'll talk about the skins and how they relate to the Holy Spirit in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air.
0: Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for The Unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.